Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip and commentary. You can't beat the sound of a contented cat. That's why veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Because he knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. And our premium cat food is designed to satisfy even the most finicky eaters. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And they were looking very, very much at certain newspapers to see what information was out there, what were the police doing, were they progressing at all. And so they have as much interest in what we're doing as we have in what they're doing. So it's a bit of a a cat and mouse game with them. I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. A dismembered body of an unidentified victim, a missing head and a mystery that took years to solve. The case of Farah Swale Noor and the so-called Scissor Sisters, who were convicted of his brutal death, fascinated the nation. But behind the scenes, one detective was uncovering a tragic story that he would never forget. Today, I'm talking with retired Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan about the body in the canal and the efforts he went to find out just what had happened. He tells me about the murder cases the feuds and the special operations that defined his career and which formed the intriguing narrative of his new book, Cracking the Case. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I was going to say to you, I might start off with a memory I have of chatting to you around the time. It must have been after the this case had concluded and... You weren't looking for any of this to be quoted. You were just having a conversation with me and you were talking about Linda Mulhall and how much she impressed you by cooking a meal for her children when you went to the house. And it was genuine. You you were just, you had a, a kind of a kindness to her, a compassion to her. And I think that plays out in the way you have told this story in the book. Um, And we'll get to that. So, like all good stories, I think we'll start at the beginning. Tell me about this case. And you were, I think you've you've stated that you were, uh, you were either, you were relaxing anyway when you got the phone call. I, I was actually preparing uh, to go out on a, on a pitch in a place called Batterstown, County Meath, because I was coaching a, a camogie team, Black All Gales camogie team. So it was uh, getting 
out to do the, the training session with, with the, the girls and my phone was hopping. Uh, so look, I answered it because, you know, you're a senior investigating officer in the guards. You, you've, you have a work phone. So you answer it and it's... You answer it when it rings a few times. You do, you do, you yeah. certainly do. You ignore it maybe if it just rings once. Yeah, look, at if, if, if it's nothing too important, if it's really important, they'll ring you back yeah. and they'll continue, continue to ring you back. But I suppose Colin Fox, uh, Colin was uh, my D sergeant in in, um, in Fitzgibbon Street and Colin, you could n- kind of knew by the tone of his voice, it was, this is quite serious. And he was basically, Keg, will you come in? You know, we, we think we have uh, body parts in the canal. And I'm standing in the middle of a, a big pitch in Batterstown saying, well, are you sure? Because we've had it before where dummies would be put in uh, just for jokes and pranks and so on and so forth by local children and whatever. And um, I, I asked him to get one of the fire people to, fire brigade people to just have have a, I look and see what it was and within seconds he's back to me and he says, no, you better come in. This is a body cut up, to, up into many parts. So literally you then change back into your work, your work suit and head What happened in. to the Camogie team? I think they were left to their own devices that night. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were actually a very, very good team so they were, probably didn't need me at all. Yeah. So they, uh, they, they went off and, and trained themselves. So I headed into, into town, into, into the city centre uh, arrived down to Ballybock Bridge, and sure enough, there was a, it was a hive of activity, a lot of onlookers, um, and and usually then you've you've young people then trying to throw coins and spitting in in in, in the canal at the body parts, so we had to disperse them fairly quickly and then seal down the whole area. I was going to say a difficult scene to kind of quickly cover. Very difficult because it's over water and bridge. you know a bridge, yeah. yeah. So you have to stop traffic plus. You have to, I presume, get sort of a larger tent than usual because you're covering a larger area. Yeah, it, it was a very large area because we then had to get the the, the guard of water unit out, and then they had to start. Um, we, we preserved it overnight, obviously, and then the next day we had the state pathologist down, Mike Curtis, and then we pursued because obviously I wanted him at the scene to to view. Uh, the body parts in situ and to get his thoughts on, on, on because they're very important, what what uh, the state pathologist thinks or, you know, what happened here. They, they, they provide very, very in-depth views. So we call out, obviously, the forensic science and uh, they come out and then we have a lot of other national units come out to assist. So we, we had our first conference that night and then the next day it's about uh, seeing what body parts we had and then more importantly, what we hadn't got. And obviously the head was once one of the the main parts that was missing. Uh, we searched. So what was it like to look into the canal then? Like what could you see? And you literally could see a leg with a sock on it. You could see the torso with the uh, I think the Ireland jersey, um, and then there was other parts in in black refuse sacks. And like, was it that obvious? Like that, that I mean that you were looking into the water and you could literally. It was very obvious. It was very obvious. And it was very clear that this was not a dummy. Very obvious when you actually looked into the canal and you were there in person to to view the body parts. It was quite obvious then. It was uh, a body, unfortunately, that had been dismembered. So we then have our first conference that night. But then the next day, everything kicks into place. You begin your investigation. Uh, The first thing is who is the person? And then why? uh, Who was involved? Uh, that proved very problematic for a number of weeks because uh, we literally could not identify who the person was uh, until we got we got um, 
we offered a, a Crime Stoppers reward. Uh, uh, we also put it out in some of the uh, newspapers in the city centre. And we got a lot of traction. Look, at obviously there was massive uh, interest in the media. Initially, uh, it was been portrayed as a, a voodoo killing. But there was, there wasn't just, that wasn't just speculation. There was kind of, you know, it was the, was it the missing head and there was another body part missing um, that would have led to that. That wasn't just kind of idle speculation. Oh no, it, it was very justified. Yeah. Uh, particularly when... We looked at other cases uh, that were considered to be voodoo killings. We, we looked at the Boy Adam case in London. Uh, we contacted... Just remind us about that, what had happened that, in that case. That's where a, a young boy had been found in, in the Thames, Thames in, in London. And we met with the investigators. We also, in particular, we spoke with the Ritual Crimes Unit in, in South Africa and detailed him as, as to what the facts of the case were. And it, it, you know, it had all the hallmarks of a voodoo killing. I, and what were they? The hallmarks of it. Well, basically, that's you know, when when a, somebody comes to kill somebody in particular, they will take uh, parts of the body, and the head or the private parts. They mm. will take them, and I would have visited a priest in in St Peter's in um, in Cabra there, Fibsborough who had a lot of experience in, in dealing with matters in in Africa. And um, I sat for a long time telling him the details. And he, you know, basically told me, unfortunately, Christy, I think this may be a, a ritual killing. And that the person who would have come in to do it has gone and they're gone with the body parts. I'll have to put a graphic warning on this, but what, what like in a ritual killing, would they have used those body parts for? Well, they, they basically use them for potions. Right. Yeah, there'd be potions. Uh, they believe that they're, you know, there's special powers or cures uh, in relation to certain parts and, you know, th that they would kill the person and take those body parts and then use them for a, a potion. That's basically it. Yeah. Uh, and that boy, Adam, that was found in the Thames, was his body discovered in a suitcase, was it? And and there was, or was it? it I don't remember now to yeah. tell you the truth. It, it, it was a couple of years previous to this as well. But nonetheless, it had been it had been confirmed, or they had investigated it yes. for this similar kind of voodoo um, style killing. To have got to the voodoo part, you had to discover a little bit about the remains. Yeah, yeah. Initially, it was believed that um, it was the body of a, a, a white male, um, but that was because of the body had been in in the canal so long that it, it the skin was separating. And it appeared it, the person was white. But uh, then when some of the other clothes was taken off uh, in the morgue, it was obvious then that it, it was the, the body of, of, of a black male. Mm. Uh, so then you set about trying to uh, see if anybody is reported missing. Um, we would have checked, I think it was in excess of 60 missing persons that had been reported in or around that time. And, and people go missing for a variety of reasons. I mean, it, it, some people just want to dis disappear mm. uh, for, for you know, they, they want to vamoose out of town or whatever. But um, we couldn't find them in, in, in any of the missing persons uh, until then uh, a witness came forward who claimed they had met Farah uh, in O'Connell Street um, in, in March of 2005 and that he was with three other people and they named uh, the three people as being Kathleen Mulhall, Linda Mulhall and Charlotte. So um, then we set about obviously tracing uh, 
his prior movements and their movements as well uh, and, and discovered that um, Kathleen had been living in Richmond Cottages uh, over near Crow Park. So it was pretty close to where our, our crime scene was. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we set about seeing, uh, obviously CCTV would have been very, very important, the movements of people around at the time. But we didn't know when Farah had been killed or when he had been placed in the canal. So we had to seize vast quantities of CCTV. Uh, we, I think we had 10 people examining CCTV every day for months on end, trying to pinpoint the movements of of the, the various actors that we suspected had been involved. Uh, we subsequently, what we believed, we, we, we had recovered enough evidence to, to arrest. Uh, we had, we had formed a suspicion that the, uh, John, uh, that's their father, uh, and Kathleen and Linda and Charlotte, we, we formed the, 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 uh, the basis of suspicion, reasonable suspicion that they were involved in, 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 in the murder of Farah and they were arrested, they were brought in and, uh, we, unfortunately then discovered, I discovered then, we didn't have sufficient evidence to charge them. You believed that basically they had acted together yeah. in some way too, but you didn't know. We didn't know the finer details. What had happened no, in the... No, we, we, we didn't know that the body body part had been taken out the Tala, uh, amazingly taken out in a bus. You know, who, who would believe that somebody would get on a bus with a, a head in, in a bag and, and travel out with a large number of people, people on the bus and literally then uh, hide the head out there. So there, there, there were all matters we didn't know. But we continued on with the investigation and we would have got to know John as the father quite well. Uh, he was a, a strong character, but he had a, you know, he, he, he wanted to tell the truth. He wanted to, uh, he was particularly perturbed by the fact that the head had never been recovered. And he basically told us that Linda knew this is after all the arrests had taken place and so on and so forth. So we said, um, okay, we'll concentrate on that. And um, I was due to go to Store Street and take up a position as the detective inspector in Store Street. And um, prior to that, the Sergeant Liam Hickey and myself, we decided we'd go out and we'd, we'd, we'd speak to her in her home in Kilclare Gardens. We went out in the morning and uh, she was hostile enough, which wasn't, wasn't, wasn't surprising anyway. You're arriving out to somebody and you're, you're accusing them of murder. You know, they're, they're going to be a little bit annoyed with you, particularly when they had been arrested and, and, and released without charge. But uh, you could see that she, she, she was under a lot of pressure. You could see that, you know, the, whatever part she had played in it was playing on, on, on her emotionally. And you could see, she could see it physically in her face that she, you know, she, she wasn't dealing with it well. Mm. So we sat down, we had tea. To be fair, she was an unusual character that when you would arrive, arrive to the house now, you know, she would actually invite you to sit down, have tea, have a club milk. And uh, it's kind of an unusual situation. You're sitting in somebody's house and you're trying to prove a case of murder and they're over uh, boiling the kettle to make tea for you. Mm. Doesn't happen too often, but it is it is an unusual situation to find yourself in. But you, look, you have to deal with it. Um, we We... She didn't wish to speak with us too much anyway. And look, we spoke for a while then. But anyway, we left. And before we left, she she was very emotional and she hugged me. And I got into the car. We had to go over and do some work over in Kulak. There was another case we were dealing with over there. And as I'm driving away out of Kilclare, heading into town, she rings 
and she wants to talk and she's very, very emotional. But I realized then I had to you know, have the case on a, on a solid legal footing. And I didn't want to go straight back up. I said, right, OK, I need to consider what my next move is because there was a little point to me getting an admission and then end up in the in the Central Criminal Court and the case been... It's something that wasn't acceptable. Well, to go over a legal a point of law, it, yeah. would, it would, have been, would have been dismissed. So we discussed what our next move was and it was decided, we, I, I decided that uh, we would go back up uh, a quarter past five that evening and uh, Liam became myself. We went back up, Liam, um, we went into the house. John was there. She was quite emotional and uh, then she proceeded to make a very, very lengthy statement to to us, which kind of very surreal that somebody is sitting there telling you about their part, what they did, uh, how they dissected another human being, which is, you know, it's, it's an unbelievable situation to find yourself in. You're, you're sitting there saying, are you really telling me you actually cut somebody's head off, you cut the private parts off, or, you know, whatever their part, they, they were saying the, the, the things they did to the to the body and as to why it happened, you know, that had a row and she had felt very uncomfortable with, um, with fire in the house. Now, to go back a little bit on this, because in your book, Cracking the Case, there's far more detail than you've just told us there. And I get the impression that <clears throat> the moment that this body was identified, this individual's name was put forward. That changed everything. Because up to that point, and how long was that until till you got the identity? It was, you got the name Faris Wale in months, wasn't it? I think it was months. It was, it was months. months. Yeah. 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 I remember writing articles around it and, you know, um, you know, identity still not known of man in canal. But there was other science from memory that was used in order to try and establish where he could have been from, what part of Africa that he could have been from. There was some very interesting science that was available from his bones and the bone marrow. We decided to contact uh, a scientist, um, a professor um, in in Belfast, and he told us that if we could get the um, water from every guard station in Dublin, he would have been in a position to... If we, if we provided him with hair and we provided him with bone samples, he would be able to tell us that if that person lived in Dublin in whatever particular area the water was from. And we did that. <clears throat> and he was in a position to tell us that he had lived for over 200 days in the Ballybuck area. It's incredible. Which was incredible and significant for us. Yeah, mm. 100%. So that, that kind of <coughs> like was something that you, you came to after. I mean, I presume um, it was a bit naive, but when you find a body like that, you're probably thinking to yourself, we'll have the identity fairly quickly. You usually do. You, you yeah. think that, you know, okay, it, the, the body parts will turn up or something will break. Someone will have gone missing. Yeah. Some, you know, and somebody will have been reported missing or the kind of the, the, the dots will start to join um, as the days go on. It must have been quite... It was difficult. Baffling as it wasn't kind yeah, of coming it was, together. It, it was. And it, look, it was... I suppose it was a, a source of annoyance that we weren't moving on. We hadn't uh, identified the person. So, you know. Who all those other things couldn't, you couldn't begin to work out at all motive, uh, you know. The, opportunity, who, you know, who, 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 who was he connected to? Where was he what in was the last reason? 24 hours of yeah. his life? Where, who last saw him? All those things which are hugely important to any investigation. You kind of got stuck 
until you had his identity. Um, and was there something about the, the the bones and where he had come from? Was that? Yes, they were. They, they, or was that available? Yeah, they were able to tell us that he, he would have come from Africa. Yeah. But, and the uh, part of Africa he would have come yeah, from. Yeah, it, it gave us... Gave it us, gave another clue. And yeah. that's maybe what drew you to start to use the African literature here to try and do the appeals. You knew he was from within a certain community so you could kind of reach out to them through, yeah. their, own, through their own media as such. And it, and it worked. And it uh, worked. We actually went to churches as well. Mm. Uh, on a Sunday morning, we would go in, we would speak to, you know, people appealing for information. And, you know, really... It was the identity that we needed to yeah. solve first, try and get 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 that that matter dealt with, because we had a lot of um, CCTV, we had done a lot of house to house inquiries, but we we weren't getting much out of that. The point to that being that while you were doing appeals in the English speaking Irish media here in this country, they probably weren't reading it. People who knew him, a lot of people who knew no, they him weren't within his community. But that's when we started using, using their their newspaper exactly, yeah, and yeah. it worked. And was that the first time you'd ever had to do that in your career? It was the first, yeah, it was the first time I had to do it. I'm sure maybe the has been, been done by other yeah. people, but for me personally, it was, yeah. So obviously then <coughs> you identified him and he had been seen in the company of the Mulholls. Before you go in to get them, you clearly have to do background, work out who they are and what's going on within that family. And what did you discover? Well, we discovered, look, it, it was it was chaotic with the, with, uh, Charlotte, Linda, and Kathleen. Um, it was a tough life. You know, mm. the, the backgrounds would have indicated that it was it was a difficult life that would uh, that was been had. Uh, we discovered that um, Kathleen had met with uh, Farah and then moved down the country. She moved down to Cork. She um, then came back to Dublin, lived in various addresses, and um, Linda was living at living at home at the time with with her children as well. So it, it was a difficult life. It, Very, and it she wasn't had been easy. in an abusive relationship herself. She, she had had a tough life. Yeah. yeah. Not, so the mother had basically left the home yeah. with this man. Um, there was indications, I think, that Farah Noor, as he was identified as, was a violent man himself. Yeah, we, we, we did a, a lot of research into his background and we discovered, unfortunately, many instances where he, he just showed that he was violent to, to females. Uh, in particular, when he had drinking him, mm. he wasn't uh, wasn't a nice person, and he tended to be violent. And we, we had that corroborated by a number of uh, landlords who told us that uh, you know I think one of them said uh, I think that when he he was sober he was the nicest fellow ever, but when he was drunk he he wasn't nice at all. Mm. And that's what we 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 discovered his his background. He could be very violent. And your witnesses were able to tell you that it looked as if they were together and they were socialising and they were probably drinking. Yeah. The last time he was at least seen. That's, that's yeah, the last time he, they were supposed to be on very, very good spirits. Mm -hmm. Supposed to be in good humour. There was no sign of, you know, that there was difficulties as such. Um, they were in town and... They were they all seen going into Richmond Cottages or was it Richmond Cottages that told a tale well, of what had happened within we, the... Well, what we discovered was that um, Kathleen was living in Richmond Cottages. Mm. And then we discovered that she had moved out of the apartment she had been in and moved into a, another apartment within, within the, the house. Uh, we, we carried out uh, an examination of the house, which didn't yield huge results. 
Um, then we, we was that because of the passage of time? No, it, it it was very well cleaned up. Very well. And were you able to see that it was well cleaned up, or it was clean? Right. Was and clean. was it was it sort of unnaturally clean for a rental property? No. It Could was you quite, see that from the forensics? Like no, it was quite average. If you look, it was it was a, a small bedsit type type of a place. But it was so clean. it didn't tell you as such no. from the forensics that it was the crime scene. You were still, when you were at a point that you were going to question the Mulholes about their activities, their, their you know, being seen with yeah. Baranur and their relationship to him, you didn't have a crime scene then? When we, when we were, went through, when we arrested him, we did. But then we, we had gone back and we had... Uh, we confirmed then that uh, it was the crime scene because we, we the, the forensic scientists came in and they used luminol, which, uh, you know, they, what they do is they seal the house from the inside. They cover all the windows. They don't let light in. And then what they do is they, they put the luminol out and then they use uh, ultraviolet lights. And then that picks up any traces, minute traces of blood. And that's what they picked up on the walls and in the in the bathroom in particular. Uh, there was a shower tray. And so that revealed uh, a considerable body of evidence that, you know, would, would eventually formed against them. But we still didn't have clear evidence that they actually did it. No, and it didn't really reveal no. what Dr. Michael Curtis told you you'd find. Didn't he tell you you'd find an abattoir? It'd be an abattoir. It would be. Mm. Uh, but it was cleaned up. It was very but well you could up. still see enough yeah. to realise that this was the crime scene and it had been cleaned. Yes, but yeah. if if you're if if you're committing a murder a murder and there's a you know a str- unfortunately a lot of blood, it does take a real forensic clean up to mm. cover it. Even if you cover it with paint, you can still find it. Mm. Can so I mean this case is fascinating for so many ways, but in particular because I suppose without having some sort of a moral compass, feeling some sort of regret. Um, and the confessions of John and later Linda, they would have got away with murder. They, at that particular time... like that question now? Well, no, look, it's, it. it's a fair question. <laughs> no, it's a fair question. Look, at it, it is a very fair question to be fair. You know, um, prior to uh, Linda's admission, we, we, we were in a difficult place mm. as regards, could you prove beyond a reasonable doubt that these people were involved in in the the death of Farah, and it would have been very very hard to prove. You didn't have enough collab- corroborating no. evidence, and you only had them together in town and with him. With him, uh, well, we couldn't prove what happened in the apartment and the flat, and that was always going to be very very difficult. We we had we had a a good knowledge of what may have happened, mm-hmm. and then you'd have to then filter through that as to who actually inflicted the fatal blows on him. Yeah. Who then was involved in the dismemberment of the body and who then took the body parts down to the canal. So we had very few parts of the jigsaw. Mm-hmm. We had a couple, a couple of small bits of it. We, You can surmise all you want as to what happened, but that's not evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can think what you want, but that's not evidence. So we operate obviously on very evidential hard facts, cold hard facts. We didn't have them. That must be pretty disappointing, that feeling. And you went on to head up the cold case unit, the Garda's serious crime review team, which examines older murders where probably people like yourself had had that feeling at many points. They had to walk away from a case knowing they were very, very close, but not close enough. 
it's it's actually it's it is it is a hard thing to deal with. Uh, you know, you're 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 moving very well with a case. You think you have a lot of evidence. You believe you have a lot of evidence. Uh, particularly with witnesses, because you know somebody would have seen you know somebody getting killed, and they make a statement. They say, "Listen, yes, I, I this that's what I saw." And you're getting close to a trial, and the next thing is they pull their statement. They decide that they're not going to cooperate. Uh, for a variety of reasons, it could be intimidation or whatever, and then you're left with a, a, an absolute gaping hole in your um, your 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 evidence, mm-hmm. and that absolutely is, is is hard not alone for your senior investigating officer, but it's very hard for uh, the team that you're involved with. Like the team we had in Fitzgibbon Street was they were absolutely brilliant people, every one of them, uh, a very large team of the uh, detective sergeants and, and guards all involved doing huge Trojan work out interviewing people in, in houses, uh, house house inquiries, you know, thousands of uh, people met and uh, a lot of que- questionnaires and it's coming to nothing. Yeah. That is very disappointing, yes. No one saw a thing. No, nobody, nobody saw a thing. Nobody heard a thing. Yeah. Yeah, believe it or in not. In an urban city. Yes. Yeah, like it's it's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, amazing. Sometimes the more built up a place is, the, the less, less people, people see, see. Or the less people want to see. Maybe, mm. yeah, mm. yeah. So what was this story that Linda Mulhall told you that was full of horrendous detail? From the, from the <clears throat> she spoke about going in with her sister to meet her mother, um, the boardwalk. You know, I, I always found that part of it really tragic. I think it just shows you talk about the family had difficulties. This was two daughters going to meet their mother. Yeah. on the boardwalk to take ecstasy and to drink for the day uh, and meeting her with her her partner who becomes lewd later in the, in the evening as the evening goes on. But um, Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, it, 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 I suppose it's tragic, but, you know, they didn't have, I suppose, the wherewithal to be going to maybe pubs or clubs or whatever, you know. Mm. Um, that was their way of socialising. And, and it is still a way of socialising for a lot of people. That will go to certain parts of town. They will go to maybe parks to drink. Mm. Uh, they can't maybe afford to be going into the local pub because the the price of whatever alcohol they drink is 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 exorbitant or or whatever. So they will they'll make do with uh, going yeah. in and socialising on the boardwalk or you know Connell Street or whatever part of the city they decide to go to. And you know everything was grand until there was an argument broke out between. Uh, Kathleen and um, and Farah as they were walking back towards Richmond College, as he got very animated over, uh, he thought he had seen his uh, his child, and uh, Kathleen wasn't best pleased with that. And he started talking to a little child on the street who got upset, child. and yeah. he was drunk, obviously, or certainly showing. Yeah, he, he yeah he 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 certainly had a, a certain amount of alcohol consumed at that time, and they were probably. Seemed to me to be a bit annoyed with his behaviour, and then it, it, you know they were getting he was he was getting aggravated, and then they come back into the apartment, and there's music put on and so on and so forth, and then uh, it was decided that to crush up an E and put it into his drink to uh, improve his spirits and get him a bit happier than he was, and then he, as you said, he he says a very lewd remark to uh, to Linda, uh, he was trying to pull her closer to him. And then uh, Charlotte wasn't wasn't very happy with this, and you know there was a knife grabbed, and he was stabbed, and then it would appear there was a frenzy. That that's that's what took place within the apartment, and um, and both the girls did she say 
were stabbing him. It, well, she she was hitting him and uh, Charlotte had stabbed him. And then whatever came into their heads, then it was, uh, they, there was, I'd say it was a chaotic plan mm-hmm. to decide to cut him up and uh, to take uh, the identifying part off, which is obviously his head, uh, and then to conceal that. Uh, but, you know, it, it's chaotic. There's nothing planned here. Did. And the scene is in Richmond Cottages, the mother, Kathleen, is sitting out in the sitting room yeah. um, and the two girls have dragged him into the bathroom and together they're taking turns with whatever they have in that flat to, you know, cut through flesh, bone, muscle. Um, I mean, how can anybody deal with that sight? They were, they had taken... I don't think you could, I think... Mm. I think it's probably, it was just absolute mayhem in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was nothing planned uh, except then they decided maybe to, to clean up the place and, you know, when things calmed down, if you, if you could call it calm, uh, how they were going to dispose of the body parts. Um, but I mean, they didn't go too far with them. I mean, it's literally a very, very short walk from Richmond Cottages to underneath Ballybrock Bridge. It wasn't as if you were concealing them where they weren't going to be found. They were always going to be found there at some stage mm. uh, in whatever state of decomposition. Um, it's not that they, you know, they brought all the body parts up to a field and tried and to And the two them. girls again did that or did the mother help them? They were, they were uh, look, at there was a lot of cleaning up done in, and done in the apartment and then they were ferrying the body parts down to the canal. They had gone into the local supermarket then afterwards and it's uh, they were on CCTV there as well. So it's chaos, but, uh, you know. There's some organisation to it as well as disorganisation. There's a little bit of organisation. Yeah. Somebody's directing. Yeah, but it's it's all rushed. Mm-hmm. If You know, if it was really planned out, you know, they they, they would have, look at, I, I can't say what they would have done, but look at it, mm-hmm. if, you know, looking at it from a helicopter view, you'd say, if you're going to hide body parts, is the canal the place to put them? No. In the centre of a, a major city? No. So, you know, that, that, would say to me there was a huge panic going on. Uh, obviously, then there is a certain degree of planning. Then hide, hide, uh, hide mm. the head, mm. and it's never been found. So that that part of the the plan worked, um, but the rest was panic, and then waiting and seeing what's going to happen. Uh, I, I would have spoken to Linda afterwards and she said that, you know, that the case was literally in the papers all the time. It and did she re- did she tell you whether or not they revisited the scene as the body parts lay in the canal? She I, she said they were back down there, yeah, mm. uh, which often happens. Mm-hmm. You, know, they, you know, pyromaniacs will go back and see, you know, the, the, the results of their work. So it, it does happen. And, you know, people who are involved in murders are always interested to know what the police know. How are they moving on? That's why it's very important not to have too much detail in the paper, a certain amount. But if you've critical, important details in 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 um, out there in public, let like social media, whatever, it does inform the suspects of how the police are getting on or how they're not getting on mm-hmm. uh, with the case is it moving on or not. So that's hard to manage, and they were looking very, very much at certain newspapers to see what information was out there, what were the police doing, were they progressing at all? And so they have as much interest in what we're doing as we have in what they're doing. So it's a bit of a, a cat and mouse game with them. 
And with Linda, it was, I think she spoke to you about that smell that she could never get rid of. Yeah. It lingered with her. It was the that nightmare scenario you describe of her getting a bus with the head in a backpack. Yeah. And she tells you, I think she buries it first up in Tala and then goes back and right and takes it she said, first she, in Tala. She took the head out to Tala um, into, um, I think his father, Walsh Park. She buried it. Um, she was happy enough that it, you know, it was concealed, but there was a, a huge downpouring of rain and then she got very, very worried that the head would be discovered and she was actually right because uh, it was on an incline and the water had flowed down. It was a, at a very, very heavy rate of, of mm. falling and she decided that she would remove the head and put it in a bag. She hid it in a hedge up in Tala for a period of time and then went back up to the house, got, got a hammer and got a bag and a bottle of vodka and then went up to a field uh, she went across, a, it was a good distance because I actually went up to the field with her when she met her admissions. So she went into the field on her own, uh, not not um, not a nice place to end. This is quite isolated at the time it was. And she proceeded to drink the bottle of vodka, the bottle of vodka, and then smashed the head up. And uh, she she said she was very remorseful. She, you know, that she was sorry for what she had done. And uh, then she went back home. Uh, we, after interviewing her the first time, the next day we went up to the field and she brought us in. Uh, we recorded it when we were going in. It was audio visual recorded. So you're walking into a, a field, obviously, and I'm holding up the, the wire. There was a barbed wire in the field and I'm actually putting my foot on the barbed wire and holding up another strand for her to go through it. And then I followed through with the other detectives that were there recording what was going on. I'm asking her questions uh, as to where we're going to go. And she identified that there was a burnt out car, she remembered. And then there was a, a ditch. Uh, she remembered a, a, a water pipe. It was a, a cement water pipe that she remembered and she had got in there. And that's where she had uh, smashed the head. So we got out our division search team and um, we searched the area, but we never we never found the, uh, the, the head or, or any parts of it. So it would be our belief that, you know, animals would have, would have taken it away. Foxes in particular probably uh, took it away because we didn't find a trace. But her memories of, of those things you discussed there would indicate that she was obviously telling the truth about that. I have no doubt she, she was telling it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she yeah. no way of knowing the geography of that. No, she, she, look, at, she could tell us exactly where she was going and she used the markers as to where she had been and just to, you know, the, all the, all the, all the, like it was months, obviously, later, we were, we were going back up there. So the head has never been recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, we then went back um, and uh, I took her down to Richmond Cottages on the Sunday. It was uh, the All-Ireland semi-final. Uh, a game I had been a great intent on going because, <laughs> look, at, I enjoy hurling. And uh, we were just walking under the 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 stands there, or the, I think it was the canal in there. Um, obviously, the crowd is wedged inside in Crow Park and you could hear the roar of the crowd, uh, Kilkenny and Galway. And Galway had put, I think it was five goals past uh, Kilkenny that day. So you could hear, you know, the the uh, excitement inside and we were standing outside with literally, literally nobody around. 
and uh, she she felt very unwell and was getting sick and she couldn't go into I, I wanted her just to because you, you have to prove the facts people you know might say well you have a statement of evidence you, say, you have a statement there from somebody and they've told you they've killed somebody but people have admitted murders before and they didn't do them so you have to prove everything they tell you and you have to do your level best to corroborate what they're saying to you because if you don't and then there's parts of the statement untrue or they've misrepresented the facts or whatever then you're going to really undermine your case so just you know it, it's important that you know people would know that you prove everything in the statement. If they say, you know, let's say Coronation Street was on at a particular time I was watching it, well, you will go to the TV company and you would prove that Coronation Street was on at that time or the weather was on or the news was on or whatever program was on. So you have to prove all those matters. If they say it was raining that day, well, you, you will go to Met Aaron to prove that it was actually raining and you, you prove everything to the nth degree. So it was important that we will go back down to Richmond Cottages and um, establish exactly where they went, what they did inside, but she, she she physically wasn't able to do it or, you know, she 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 just couldn't do it. In a way that the crime scene works as yeah. such, the way she says, yeah. spatial point of view, etc. But um, you have some sort of a, you have a sympathy for her of sorts at that stage. You have, it's so unusual for somebody to confess to anything, let alone a murder like this. Um, a killing like this but you have that moment that you're standing outside the cottage that you're standing with this girl whose life is going one direction or has gone one direction and you can hear the joy of Croke Park behind you yeah. two different worlds completely and, and, and it's extremely sad mm. um, you know I, I, I probably had, I, what I would say is I had a good understanding for, from her position and I always thought to myself, if she, you know, if they had of okay, what they did was very, very wrong, terribly wrong. And then they compounded it then by cutting up uh, the body of a person, which is terrible. But if they literally had walked up to Fitzgibbon Street Garda Station and gave a version of events, okay, we'd have to prove or disprove it. But uh, then I think they would have fared far better. But if the shock and awe of cutting up a body, which is very, very hard to comprehend, I mean, you know, it's really war situations. You you would maybe hear things like things of that taking place. So, for me, uh, I, I would have got a good understanding of her life, how she'd been treated, and mm. how, how how actually very little went right for her. The, the the only thing, the only the only part of her life that she seemed to be very happy with was was her children. She adored her children. She really did. And I, and from my my memory, I don't think she wanted to go into town that night. She she was she was on about staying at home. Mm. Uh, so it was very very unfortunate the decision that she decided to go out. Uh, but look, at, you know, you 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 get involved in these things, so you have to you have to pay the price for it. And the GAA, which has been so big in your own life outside your work, like you know that idea of those final you know the cup final days and. It's all about family and it's all about children being brought by the hand by a loving parent, really, to yeah. an occasion like that. You know, had she been lucky enough to have come from a family like that, she'd probably never been standing outside that Richmond cottages with you. It's, it's hard to know. Uh, I suppose, you know, people can be very unfortunate in their lives. Others can be born into, you know, into circumstances or homes where, you know, they have people that look after them very well and, as you say, bring them to Crow Park, bring them to wherever, you know, as a child would be. So it's it's, it's difficult to know. Would it would have been any different? Probably would have been, you know, if she if she was living in some other environment. 
Um, Family is very important. Extremely important. Well, look, at it, it guides, it, it, it helps people, probably shapes who they are. Um, look, at there's people come from very good homes who have been involved in murders too, mm. no doubt. Uh, I, I know a number of them who came from millionaire homes and they committed uh, some terrible atrocities killing people. But it does help. It certainly does help when there's a guiding hand, somebody there, um, minding you maybe and and encouraging and advising or whatever. Uh, so it's 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 a difficult it's a difficult. But you know, there's a lot of other families. You know, the children would have come from difficult circumstances, and they ended up, uh, you know, brilliant, of course, uh, brilliant people in 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 different professions. The the trial occurred, and it was a huge. This story was. I mean, I think you were down there. I probably was. I think you were, yeah, a good bit. It was everywhere. <laughs> um, I do remember very much covering this story all the way along. And um, yeah, I mean, the outcome was basically that Charlotte was convicted of murder. Linda of manslaughter. Manslaughter, yeah. And the mother. She was con- con- convicted of a lesser offence. And she, I think it was five years she got. Hmm. So it was basically assisting. That's that's really it after the after the fact. Yeah, that bit of it was what really kind of I have to say got me the idea that it was the mother was there, and I suppose the narrative was that he had been very violent to their mother, yeah. and in a moment of madness and the chaos and the drugs and all that existed in that house that night, uh, they were trying to protect their mother. That's that's the the scenario that was been put up and. To a certain degree, I suppose you're, you know, they, they, they were, you know, trying to protect her from him, maybe because they knew the history between the two of them. Um, but ultimately, you know, a person lost their life. Yes. And then, you know, the, the, the remains then are dismembered and hidden and, and, and that's, I suppose, compounds it all. Um, and then Linda got 15 years, which was pretty, pretty a serious sentence for manslaughter mm. in Ireland. Um, and then Charlotte got, got life imprisonment. Yeah, she's still in jail. She's still she's still in jail. Yeah. She must be nearly coming to the end, is she? She more than likely is, yeah. yeah. She, she would because she's she's in since I think 2006. Mm-hmm. So 17 years, it's... It's a, it's a kind of an average life sentence would be, nearly yeah. coming up. It would be, yeah. Um, do you think either of them are or were at the time a threat to anybody else? They'd be more of a threat to themselves. Mm. I, you know, I mean, to trying to mind themselves. No, uh, I, I, I don't think they, they would have been. Um, you know, they they found themselves in in this situation because that's important when people yeah. are coming out of jail is, yeah. for yeah. society to accept them back and you know accept that they've done their time and they paid their debt to society. Yeah. and 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 they look at it. they went through the the justice process and then they've they've gone to prison and then they come out. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have thought that they'd be a huge threat to anybody. No. Mm. And what did you learn from that case? I uh, patience, <laughs> absolute pa- stamina. Yeah, uh, I, I'm a great believer. You know, I mean, I, I, I always use the sort of an analogy that, you know, if if you're a detective, you need to be a marathon runner, because if you're a sprinter in in that field of business, you will not stay the course. Because mm. if you think you're you're going to complete it in a, in a in a very short period of time, that won't happen. Like some that that case started on the thirtieth of March two thousand and five, and we were still uh, involved in it uh, over four years later. And I suppose the important thing for me was to have 
a really, really good experienced detective team with you. Mm. You really, really need people who are committed. And, and that that's what I had in Mount Chai and Fitzgibbon Street. Uh, there, there were detectives who had been involved in other major murder inquiries. So they knew, they knew what to do. They knew how to do it. And, and uh, it's having the stamina and the wherewithal and patience to stay the course. Because if, if, if people think they're going to come in and do a CI, CSI Miami in a half an hour on a case and it's all over and everybody's charged and convicted within, within a period of time, it's not, it's not going to happen. Uh, and we were also dealing with, uh, in April 2005, we, we had four murders we were dealing with in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the district. Mm. So it was very, very busy. So it, it takes a huge amount of time. It seems to me with that one as well, with Farah, nor there was a lot of ifs, like if that science hadn't existed that could have led you to take the way you did to try and identify him, he may never have been identified, at which point that voodoo kind of scenario probably would have remained as no, viable. No, I, I would think we still would have solved it. We would have got his identity, uh, but it took a long time. Mm. It took a long, long time. Uh, normally, the identity of the person is discovered very, very quickly because... You know, if, if the person has been involved, if somebody isn't there anymore. Yeah, yeah. But if they, look at we we've had cases where people are involved in criminality and they're murdered, but we have their fingerprints. Yeah, so we know who they are. Yeah, or somebody will say, well, you know, I um, their son or daughter is missing, but nobody was coming in reporting far and or missing at all. Uh, so there was a, a lot of I suppose factors at play here. So it was never going to be a simple one. Um, initially, you would think, yeah, that you know, this should unfold and. You know, we, we'll have this dealt with in a reasonable period of time, normally maybe six to 12 months or whatever. Uh, but this certainly didn't. And and uh, particularly after we had gone out and arrested people and um, nothing, we got, we, we got very little results of it. So we, we would have met as a team after they had been released. And um, we were very deflated, I can tell you, very deflated. And we had a lot of other other work to do as well. So you're not concentrating on this, the one case every day. It's not that because every day there's something new coming in. There's, 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 you know, a lot of very serious crime committed in, in all areas uh, in Dublin. So you have to deal with all those investigations as well and keep them moving on. Otherwise, you, you, if, you, if you put all your resources into one case, all of the other cases will not move on. And I suppose each murder case has a particular pressure in the case of Farah Noor it was probably a huge amount of pressure coming on you from the media, from the public interest in the case. Yeah, um, the media, the media didn't, played a big part. He didn't have family screaming from the rooftops no. looking for it. So, but in other cases, you would have that. In other cases, you'd have family would come in, they would meet you too, and quite rightly, they'd be putting pressure on you to say, listen, what have you done? Why haven't you arrested people? Have you any information from us? You're, you know, some people would be very blunt and say, listen, you're doing nothing. You're, you know, why haven't you solved the case? Um, so y you deal with that in, in those particular cases. But in this in this case, no, we didn't have the, the family pressures. We we didn't have the, probably the, the big pressures that you would have from the public in certain cases, you know, p politicians included. Uh, the media, I suppose, were of, of, of huge assistance here mm. because they kept it alive in the papers, they kept it in the mind's eye. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. Um, and in other cases, obviously, you would have the pressure of the fact that this individual that you might have suspected could reoffend. So you need to move as quick as you possibly can. Yeah, that's in always order a big to, factor. Big factor. Always a big, oh, yeah. well, you, you always have to be mindful that 
particularly maybe gangland cases where, you know, one gang is trying to shoot and kill the other, then you have to be really working fast mm. there to say, right, we have to calm this down, we have to damp it down, and then we have to get out and arrest the people, you know, and, and do your level best to, to get as much evidence as quickly as possible so that you take the most circulation. You seem to have got the full spectrum over your career and there's really just a glimpse of some of the stuff you've done in this book. Um, you started out in, I recall, Rathfarnham District Court many, many years ago. Were you in the drugs unit somewhere in there? I would have been in the drugs unit in, in Crumlin. Uh, in Crumlin. And Probably the cases were going through there. I was we would have had a reporting rest. for the evening press. In Tala. Dinosaur. Evening press, lovely. Um, Very good. But yeah, and then you, <clears throat> I mean, you, you served all over the, the country and the city and moved on into the cold case unit where you have included some really interesting cases in the book as well. But finish your career in the heart of a gangland feud, which was, you know, some of us believe it kind of came out of the blue. It didn't. It was bubbling. You detail exactly, really, yeah. the kind of factors that were at play there. And then you had to deal with it. And of course, that was Drogheda. A difficult couple of years. Um, I I had been based in, in, in Cavan Monaghan, which I actually really, really liked. It was a great place to work in, but it was a considerable distance from where I was living. Uh, but great people up there, uh, got, on, got on like house and fire with everybody up there. But then uh, the position of chief superintendent in Loud came up and I was asked to consider it. So I was asked to go back to Dublin and I, look, at, I'd worked in Dublin for a long, long time. And I said, right, well, look, at, I'll try a different challenge. I'll try Loud. And I, I went over. Do you think it was going to be quiet? I thought it'd be reasonably quiet. Yeah. Definitely. I, I didn't think uh, we were going to face it. I didn't think the, the, the mayhem that was going yeah. on there. But... When I, when I go to a new new station, a new division, I always, you know, carry out an assessment myself to see what's going on. And the first thing you look at is, um, you know, the seizures of drugs. The, what, what's the level of violence? And I could see clearly there was a huge level of violence going on in Drogheda and Dundalk. And then you could see that there was a massive, massive problem with drug intimidation. And the families who have been threatened, uh, grandmothers and grandfathers would have been threatened, and then slowly but surely, you could see then there's two gangs and they're going at each other every day of the week. They're fighting with each other on the street, petrol bombing different uh, associates' houses. And then uh, the level, uh, the le it was the level of intimidation of, of families that struck me because we, I would have spoken to families. If, 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 if a family was complaining about being intimidated, I always uh, did my level best to meet them and get an understanding from where they were and why why was this happening? So I met with a number of families, uh, and they had they would explain their son or daughter would have got into difficulties with cocaine. They would be uh, snorting cocaine, and then they owed a sum of money, and it usually was less than a thousand euros. But then it increased because they, they obviously they use compound interest fairly well in the drug in the drug business. And, uh, you know, I suppose it's important to understand the drug business actually functions as a drug business. They, they, they really do. They, they always have, always have somebody collecting their debts mm. and they make sure that people pay. So what happens then is they threaten the family. Uh, usually it's subtle enough. I, you know, I, I'm going to do something to your family. I'm going to burn your car out or I'm going to damage the house. And then sometimes the money is paid over. Then other times it's not because the people don't have the money. They can't They can't pay it. So then the drug dealers will come out and then they start, you know, initially knocking on the door, trying to use the, the strong arm tactics of 
you pay up or else we will we will deal with you, then they come back maybe and then there's a petrol bomb or there's a pipe bomb. Sometimes then shots fired through the window. And then you have families absolutely devastated. You know, people are trying to move out, trying to go abroad. Uh, it, it's it's absolutely one of the most horrible, horrible situations families find themselves in. Life changing for people. And while you're on that point, what advice would you give? Well, the advice I would have always given, and I, you know, you meet with a family and they say, well, some families would say, well, we're going to pay. Okay. Well, if you pay, you're opening the money tap. And the money tap then for the criminal is open and they will come back. So what I would say is you need to talk to the police. You need to talk to the local Garda and give them a sense and get an understanding. There's an inspector in every division appointed to deal with drug intimidation. And it does work very well because we we dealt with a number of cases where families came into us and said, you know, uh, my son owes a thousand euros. They're threatening to petrol bomb us. It, they, in three or four weeks time, the, the, the drug debt is multiplied and uh, they owe maybe 10,000 and they don't have the money. So then we would start investigating it and then we'd be able to start targeting the criminals who were doing this. And on a number of occasions, we arrested them and some of them were doing jail. Mm. And it's definitely the best advice to certainly at least yeah. you can make your own decisions after, but go yeah. talk to the Gardaí. But to be, f- be fair, then there are other organi- organisations like the FASN Family uh, Addiction Support Network in mm. Dundalk. And they do great work all over the, the northeast of the country, advising families and helping families who are the victims of um, of drug intimidation. And they're, they're really, really, they're a great organisation. Yeah, and you, you know, know, it can feel like, I'm sure, there is no way out of it. I'm sure it can feel like the absolute end of days to be in that situation, but there is. There is a way out. There is a way out. Yeah. And there is a, you come out the other side of it. Um, but back to Drogheda, just briefly, there was... All that was going on, there was an identifiable amount of people involved in in drug dealing at high, low and medium levels, 150, a lot for a small town of 41,000 people. You have sort of done a rough sum of the amount of money there was in it by estimating, guesstimating the amount of people taking cocaine. And you could see the the issues. And also you've, you've very... Um, well described the murder of two significant individuals which made way for a very dangerous grouping to take over. Yeah, and look at when they when the the row broke broke out between them all, look at, you know, unfortunately Robbie Lawler arrived into town mm. and certainly uh he stirred up a lot of emotions on on, on both sides. And um, look at he as, as well documented he met his demise up in up in Northern Ireland. But uh, he certainly caused a lot of chaos among people, terrified people, and um, really inflamed the situation. That's, mm. that's what happened. Really, really inflamed the situation because he really didn't care uh, about what he did and who he did it to. He crossed the line in the sand, really, mm. when he kidnapped and murdered Keen Mulready Woods, 17-year-old child who also was dismembered and whose body parts were left around in a kind of a message to it, rivals. It was. It was It was a, a murder that was committed to absolutely terrify uh, everybody. And it did. It certainly did. It, it, ter- it, it, it terrified not only the criminals, but it also terrified uh, every honourable, decent person in Drogheda. It was a, a, an absolute terrible, terrible, tragic event for Keane's 
parents and and, and his his his, uh, his family, um, but it did cause change because I think the criminals themselves realised that uh, you know a threshold had been crossed and um, it shouldn't happen and it should never happen again. I think the public realised that this situation in Drogheda was unbelievably violent and now we had a child dead. And that's, like, Keane was only a very young boy trying to find his way in the world, trying to find his way in life. It shows really, though, how these things can blow up. It does. In and a way, out of nowhere, in any town, there is no place in Ireland that there was a time when people felt once they weren't living in Dublin, they were kind of okay. But now it's, it it's everywhere. Anywhere. Yeah. It can happen anywhere. And, you know, there, you know, there's a certain level of criminality that exists in all towns. Um, some people mightn't like to think that's the way it is. There's a subculture of it there. And it's when people are not happy with uh, the, the divide of the, the profits and decide then to take action or decide to intimidate people. So what happened in Drogheda could happen in any town, mm. any any town at all. I mean, Drogheda's not a huge town. It's a little over 41,000 people. The majority are, are very, very good law-abiding people and hugely supported to me. They were absolutely brilliant to me. And the local politicians all were very, very good with us. Um, they ensured that we got resources. They campaigned for, for me to get resources. And it, it's Drogheda is a really, really fantastic town. It's it's back running, you know. I think uh, it's pulling itself out of the shadow of, of, of what was there. Uh, the, the huge criminality that was going on uh, but it can happen in any other town and people, you know, need to be mindful of that. People, you know, who are occupying the rank that I occupied and other ranks and not alone that in, in, in you know, politicians need to be mindful of it as well. That when the signs of a town is getting out of control, there needs to be an immediate plan brought in and a, and a well-resourced plan to deal with it. And mm. ultimately that's what happened in Drogheda, but it took a while to do it. And I think, and finally, we have spoken about this before, but, um, you know, it's also surely down to the people who take cocaine. Drogheda is a very prosperous town. There was a lot of cocaine being bought. It was making people very rich. And, you know, ultimately, those feuds were about the money and about that money that goes from the pocket of somebody who's working all week and it goes straight up the ranks to those guys that they do not want in their town. Yeah, and they're the people that are going to absolutely ruin their town, ruin their village. Uh, we, as a nation, we have a chronic, chronic problem with cocaine and and, and a, a lot of other drugs, but cocaine in particular at the moment, uh, you, you see very, very young people right up to people in their 70s uh, taking cocaine. It's across all professions. Uh, every profession, including the guards. Mm-hmm. Including and journalism. And, and journalism media. and yeah. uh, sports yeah. and so on and so forth. Uh, it, it is causing massive, massive damage. You will have people out who are very well healed on a Friday, Saturday and Sunday and they will be buying their, their cocaine. But they know where this is coming from. They know the damage it's doing, you know, not only to themselves, but it's also doing to society. But I think, unfortunately, is seems to be coming as acceptable as alcohol abuse. Mm. People, you know, think, well, my my friend or my mate or my teammate or whatever, 
they take coke and I'll take coke and, you know, am I cool? Don't they look well? You know, uh, it doesn't put, you don't put on weight and so on and so forth. It, you know, and, and I've spoken to a lot of people. I, I know a lot of people who take cocaine. I, you know, you, you, you know them mm. even outside of the guards. They're, they're not, they're not involved in criminality, but you, when you speak to them and I'd be always interested to hear their story, how did they become involved and then how did they get themselves out of it and, and that. Uh, one of the, the, the difficulties with cocaine addiction or any any of that type of uh, the heroin is if you get up on a Monday morning and say, right, I want to give up cocaine today, it is difficult to get on a drug rehabilitation program because the funding has not been put in to uh, dealing with you know, the, for, for the demand reduction agencies. Mm. And I know, if, and, and and that's not something I'm saying, you know, off the top, top of my head. It, it's something that I've been told by counsellors. They have a huge amount of people who wait, who are waiting to go on drug rehabilitation programs, but they could be waiting six or eight months. Yeah, we don't have the health response there. We haven't got that. And, and you know, it's, it's not all a Garda criminal justice issue. No. No, because... People find themselves in difficult, difficult circumstances and they become involved for, you know, I, I recently asked people from the Red Door Project to come out to my own GA club uh, to do a drug uh, talk. And I look, at I, I was in the, in the guards, obviously, for 40 years, but I was fascinated by them, mm. fascinated to listen to their stories. And they were brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And the audience that was there listened with great intent. But you know, you'd have to say, are you hitting the audience that you need to be hitting? No, probably not. Mm. You, you know, you, you need, uh, education is hugely important. That it's in, in the schools that people realize there are huge, serious consequences to taking drugs. Uh, it mightn't be in the short term, but it'll certainly be in the long term. Um, because, you know, a small conviction for drugs, you won't be going to the States, you won't be going to Australia because they'll always tell you they have enough themselves mm. without bringing in Irish addicts. So there are huge consequences and it takes a while for it, it to manifest them within, within themselves and their families. Uh, and then they get in, they're, they're getting involved with some of the most undesirable violent people they'll ever meet in their lives. And they're certainly filling their pockets, which... Filling their pockets with millions. They wouldn't necessarily... And it's a, it, look, it's a, multi, like, it's a multi-million pound um, business. And... Yeah, I mean, look, yeah. the demand and the supply are equal problems. And Ultimately. there is no problem with supply that, that yeah. I've ever seen. Mm. Like I, I remember when I was in Crumlin, from a time you might hear there's a heroin drought or there's a cannabis drought, you can't get any resin. But th that would abate after about two weeks and somebody then would bring in a shipment. But I never have heard that there was a cocaine drought. Mm. So that has to tell you, uh, and I'm no expert, I've experienced, that's all, that's all I have is experience. And my experience would tell me that there cocaine is very, very plentiful. Mm. Very plentiful. You, you saw up in Donegal there, bales of it coming in, floating up on a beach. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the, the plot of a film. It's like a blizzard. Yeah. yeah. Christy Mangan and your book, Cracking the Case. Delighted you wrote a book. I didn't expect you. Why is that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you might have taken a wee while to settle into the retirement. Uh, yeah, I looked at it. Look, it was something. It was floated past me on a number of occasions, and it's something that I said no, I wouldn't really be. So who'd want to read it anyway? You know, I mean, uh, I just. Uh, well, it's a great read, and yeah. I think it covers it covers so many interesting stories and the story of Ireland, really, in a way. 
in it's 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 forty years of the police. I mean, the the, the Gardaí were uh, hundred years of age last year, and I was smiling to myself one day. I was saying, "Well, I've spent forty percent of that time in it, and I've seen you know a huge change. I've met fantastic people. I mean, class 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 people." Uh, sat with many families, uh, you know, who've lost loved ones through murder, in particular, um, and listened to how it has impacted on them, and you see the tragedy of it. But then, you know, you see somebody arrives into the guard station with a, a box of chocolates for a guard, maybe who helps somebody uh, in a traffic accident, and you know, it, it, it really tells you, God, are, are people decent and good, uh, and the majority of people are. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, thankfully they are. That's why we all keep going, because there's way more good people in the world than bad. Thankfully, thankfully, yeah. Christy Mangan, thank you very much. No problem, Nicola. Thank you very much. Take care. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday world responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.